0: Thank you for listening to our New Life Christian Center podcast. Stay tuned after the sermon for more ways to connect with us. I asked the youth this morning in Sunday school to help me decide which, uh, which I shouldn't have said joke, which stories to tell to, uh, to start the service this morning. This is one that they thought would, uh, would work well. So uh, a preacher said there was going to be a meeting of the, the church board immediately after the service. And uh, after the the close of the service, the board got together at the uh, the back of the sanctuary, and uh, there was a, a stranger, somebody no one had ever seen before, that was with them during this board meeting, and uh, the preacher said, hey buddy, didn't, didn't you understand this is a, a meeting of the board of the church? And the guy says, yes, and after today's sermon, I suppose I'm just about as bored as anyone else who came today. <laughs> They, th- they thought that was a good enough dad joke, I should save it for next week. Here's another one of those. God's talking to one of his angels, and he says, you know what I've just done? I just created a 24-hour period of alternating light and darkness on the earth. Isn't that good? And the angel says, yeah, what are you going to do now? God says, I think I'm going to call it a day. <laughs> I could also have used that one next week, too, right, Ty? <laughs> okay, one more. Uh, they didn't get that one, never mind. Uh, here's a good one. So, a uh, pastor of a, a small town church had been advised by his doctor to lose 30 pounds or uh, he was going to risk serious health consequences. The uh, The pastor took his new diet so seriously that he even changed his driving habits so he wouldn't drive by. Uh, his favorite bakery. Let's see where this is going? One morning, the uh, the pastor arrived for Bible study carrying a big box of Persians, which I can identify with. the uh, The class chuckled and they were kind of poking fun at him because they knew about his uh, his diet. And uh, he smiled. He says, "Well, these are special Persians." I accidentally drove by the bakery this morning and in the window I saw this big box of Persians along with other boxes of Persians or other donuts, insert your favorite pastry, whatever you want to use. And I felt this was no accident so I prayed, Lord if you want me to have one of these delicious Persians or boxes of Persians, let me have a parking place directly in front of the store. He prayed and sure enough after the eighth time around the block, there was <laughs> so today uh, we're going to be talking about um, something completely different than i uh, than I thought we were going to be talking about up until friday I, uh, I I did a wedding on Friday, and uh, as I was preparing. Throughout the week and in the previous weeks for the the message for the wedding i uh I knew this was coming, and I had a uh, uh, a set of notes started that there were three different options in that set of notes that I had had kind of started on an outlined for previously, and I was uh excited about being able to share those things with you and uh, Friday morning um, it just seemed like those were more academic than they were supposed to be, that wouldn 't have lined up with with what Crystal was talking about that um, th- these not being my words, but that these are things that God wants you to hear, so uh, I took kind of a sharp left turn and uh, ended up in first Samuel thirteen and so that 's where we 're going to be spending our time this morning. Um, Okay, I see the clock. Uh, I, so the the oh by the way, the uh, the notes that uh, are supposed to be on U version for those of you that are used to using U version for the notes um, are not there and don't ask why they're just not there. and it, it's okay. Uh, so uh, I, m- maybe they'll get put up, but otherwise, feel free to open up your uh, your notepad in your phone or the one that you write with with a pen or a pencil and take whatever notes you think are appropriate. We're going to be spending time in uh, in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. Um and that's it's about a uh a seemingly impossible situation with an outcome that's improbable. And I like those kinds of stories. Those are the kinds of stories that movies get made out of, right? Um, and you find lots of them in the old Testament. And one of my favorite things to do is to look at those stories and to reread them and try to see what's inside those stories that aren't obvious. I mean, the obvious things, those are fun. Those are, you know, what the idea, the basic idea for the movie is, is based on, but the good stuff is what's inside of that. So uh, we're going to tear this story apart just a little bit. Um, And before we actually get to, uh, the actual scripture, I just want to to give you a little bit of history and context of where Israel came from up to this point and where they are at this point. So we all, uh, we can, let's start at Exodus, right? So they were, they were, uh, given this promise of a promised land. They were, um, able to, uh, after a bunch of super cool and powerful mir- miracles, they were able to leave, um, Egypt and, uh, Moses led them to, uh, Moses led them, but there were some other miracles that really were the things doing the leading right he uh, he takes them to the Red Sea they get to cross the Red Sea to go into the promised land and instead of instead of taking hold of that thing that they had been promised, they did something else now the the as we move forward in in chronological history of the Bible, we see that there 's lots of of uh, stories about about battles and about conquering the promised land when we finally get there right so so uh, the the generation that Moses led they were idiots kind of, and so they didn 't get to inherit the promised land they didn 't get any of it, but it was promised that that the next generations are going to be able to so as you remember the uh, the next character that we get introduced to um, what well, we had heard from before was uh, was Joshua Joshua finally leads the next generation into the promised land, and he um, you know the Jericho story so they start to take possession of the promised land and in doing so they have to um, they have to fight sometimes with the people who are there and and so I, it's it's important for us to remember that the they weren't told to go into these battles in order to conquer for conquering's sake the people that were there. It was always supposed to be this display of worship to God, so that these people that that was the um, the enemy. Will that's the word we'll use would have an opportunity to recognize who God was and join them in worship and become part of, part of God's people. That was the point. Some people did that and some people didn't. Um, so there was always provision that was made for those people that were being, uh, again, I don't want to use the word conquered, but you understand what I mean. The, there was always provision for them to be able to join God's children. Right, so we go through uh through many of the judges um, and uh, the judges are a symbol of of god 's grace with his people. Some of the judges were good judges and and helped the people take a little bit more of the promised land, and some were just not good at all and There were consequences to to uh to some of the decisions that they made. Then we had some kings, priests, and prophets that continued to lead god 's people in in taking more of their inheritance of the Promised Land, and that's where we end up with in the Book of Samuel. So they've gone through all of these iterations. They they get a little bit, but they never actually take hold of all of it. And there's always some sort of antagonist that we're up against. So many times that antagonist is uh, is the Philistines. Um, it certainly is in uh, in Samuel. So we uh, we learn about about. Uh, the end of Samuel's life in First Samuel 8, and we learn that he was a good judge, but as Israel's history kind of showed us, there were also some not-so-good judges, and his sons turned out to be the latter. Um, he, he was a good judge, he made his son judges, and they were not good. So as a result of that, the, the Israelite people, God's people, started begging Samuel for a king. Because they didn't have a king, all the other nations around them had a king. They wanted a king. They asked Samuel for it. Samuel uh, says, well, that's a bad idea. And uh, he still asks God about this. And God says, don't worry about it, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Go ahead and give them a king. And also let them know what the consequences are going to be of them having a king. And he spells out to them all these less than positive consequences about, you know, taxes and, and taking people to, to go to war for him and all, all the negative things about, about having a king. They, uh, they tell Samuel they want one anyway. God says, go ahead and give him one. And uh, that's, just as a side note, that's a, that starts to reveal to us just a tiny little, like, underlying lesson of the story itself, and that is sometimes God gives us what we ask for, even though it's not part of his good and perfect plan, and then still promises to use it for good, right? Romans eight twenty eight uses all things for, for our good, uh, turns all things for our good. This is a, another example of that. So this is when we're introduced to Saul, um, not Saul of Tarsus, but Saul, the guy who ends up being the king, Uh, He's anointed as the king, starts off pretty well, pretty well, but uh, he fails pretty quickly because he's a dope and doesn't completely surrender to God. So that's where we find ourselves in this story. Uh, In 1 Samuel 13, um, again, we're not going to start reading there yet either, but the story is after two years of Saul being the king at this point, he uh, he had... gathered 3,000 fighting men. Two of them were for himself and 1,000 were for his his son Jonathan, uh, who turns out to be the hero in the story, by the way. Uh, Jonathan ends up attacking a a Philistine garrison, so they make, again, just a little bit more progress against the Philistines and taking the promised land. But uh, there's a, a consequence to that decision, and that is the Philistines decide we're not going to let this happen again, they end up gathering 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen in response to this little victory that Jonathan, uh, that Jonathan enjoyed with uh, the 1,000 fighting men that he had. Well, as the Israelites often do, uh, they look at their circumstances and all but 600 of those 3,000 men ran away and hid. And the Bible tells us they were hiding under rocks, they were hiding in holes, they were like, it makes them sound like real wusses, because they were. Uh, So, with only 600 men left, we get to uh, the, the middle of 1 Samuel 13, and we find that Saul is waiting on Samuel. Under a pomegranate tree, and we'll get to that here in a second. He's waiting on Samuel to show up because he kind of uses Samuel as like this this uh, magic charm of sorts. Like he doesn't really understand how he's supposed to interact with God. It's it's an odd it's an odd part of the story. But he's waiting for Samuel to show up because he's prepared for these thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen. To, uh, to attack them at any moment, and he feels like he needs to check this box by having Samuel the prophet appeal to God on their behalf so that they won't get slaughtered. Well, he ends up being impatient. He doesn't want to wait for Samuel to get there, so he ends up making a sacrifice on his own, and for any of you that know anything about Old Testament history, that's a big no-no. Only the priests are allowed to do that, well, Samuel's a king. He decides he's going to do what he wants. He makes this sacrifice. And then Samuel shows up, learns what Saul has done, and says, What, what, what are you thinking? Like, you know this isn't going to work. And Saul says that, uh, you know, he just had a... Uh, <clears throat> he was just getting impatient. He wanted to make sure that this thing got done so that God would be with them. Well, that was about the end of it, and uh, Samuel says to him that, uh, sorry, just a second, let me find, 14. Samuel declares to him, okay, God is done with you. You're not going to be the king anymore. You're going to lose your kingdom. And this is the first time we hear this this phrase that will we'll, uh, come to be familiar. Verse 14 of 1 Samuel 13 says, But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord sought for himself a man after his own heart. Who does that sound like? We know who's coming next, right? David's coming next? Who gets the label, man after God's own heart? I, I never knew that that phrase was used before, but this is the, actually the first time we see it in 1 Samuel 13 uh, as a response to Samuel doing another boneheaded thing. So where we're actually going to start reading together is 1 Samuel 13, verse 19, And that says now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel for the Philistines said lest the Hebrews make swords or spears make swords or spears but all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's ploughshares mattocks essentially the deal was the Philistines were so oppressive and and so much more powerful than the Israelites at the time that one of their strategies which by the way historically this is accurate uh, many times in that In that day or in that uh, time in history, that's one of the strategies that the controlling armies or the controlling kingdoms, if they didn't just completely wipe out their enemies, they would eliminate their blacksmiths so that their blacksmiths were not available to make any weapons. That was one of their, like, we want to use these people for labor. We want to, you know, keep them under our thumb. One of the best ways to do that is to eliminate the blacksmiths. Interesting strategy. Sounds kind of effective, too. Um, Did we get through 22? Uh, So, verse 22 says, "So So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. So, picture that. The entire Israelite fighting force had two swords between them. Saul had a sword. Jonathan had a sword. You know the reason they were allowed to keep their swords, by the way? The controlling army always wanted the leaders of the army that they were fighting against or would be fighting against, they always wanted them to have a sword to be able to present to them and surrender. So the king and and the princes always got to keep their swords. Um, So... We find ourselves in this spot where they have 600 men, 600 fighting men, left from 3,000, and between them, two swords. That's where we're at. Are you frustrated yet uh, about hearing about this this circumstance? Like that? That's annoying to me. That we can look back in all of God's chosen people's history and see all of these amazing miracles i mean think about think about the things that that elisha was a part of I mean that was some amazing stuff and somehow still we find ourselves in this spot where they have so little faith that there's only six hundred of them left to fight and there's only two swords between them that that is frustrating to me that's as I read through this story I find myself actually being Like, annoyed and frustrated about it. Like, how could they do that? So, 1 Samuel 14 at the very beginning. Uh, Jonathan, he gets tired of seeing the the garrison of Philistines, the, the closest one, and he decides to act, but he doesn't tell dad. Why do you suppose that is? dad seems to have a his- the king seems to have a history of making decisions that put the Israelites in not a very great spot so this is where really where the, the, the juice of the story starts now it happened one day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who bore his armor come let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side but he did not tell his father <laughs> and then we learn in verse 2 and Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. Why do you suppose scripture tells us specifically that he's sitting under a pomegranate tree? There's two reasons that I I can imagine. One of them is that maybe this pomegranate tree is like a well-known pomegranate tree or something. And like, it's a reference, like, you know, the directions that we give out here sometimes, you know, go to Go to the abandoned barn on the, you know what I'm talking about, right? I don't think that's why scripture tells us that they were sitting under a pomegranate tree. Pomegranates are symbolism of hope and of provision and of goodness, of promise. That's what pomegranates were used. uh, they They were well known to be used for that back in that day. So we find Saul the king sitting under a pomegranate tree. Uh, on the outskirts of uh, the people who were with him were about 600 men, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, blah, blah, blah. And we learned that the the priest was wearing an ephod, and the people didn't know that Jonathan was gone. So what we learned, what, what I'm going to point out about this particular scripture at this point, we'll come back to it later on but the, Saul has a priest sitting under a pomegranate tree and the priest has an ephod. One of, the, one of the, say, tools in the ephod were these two, we don't know for sure if they were stones or sticks, but it was some sort of like oracle-based objects. And so I'm just going to use the word stones, just know nobody really knows for sure whether these things were stones or sticks or what they actually were. And nobody really knows precisely how they worked either. But essentially, it was, uh, by the way, they were called, just to show you, I'm not making this up. They were called the Urim and the Thummim. And they were essentially a, a yes-no tool. Kind of like the, like the magic eight ball of the Israelites. Like, should we attack the Philistines? Yes. Right. That's what the, these two stones were about. So essentially when the question needed to be answered for the, for the nation, like it, it wasn't supposed to be used for, you know, individual questions about individual people. It was always about what should we do as a, as a nation, as a people. The priest who was wearing the ephod would, again, we don't know if he'd, they chuck these stones out and one of them glowed or we, we don't know that. There's a lot of, of, uh, different ideas about how they would have worked. Just know that the point was, it was a pretty simple system. I mean, it was a pretty simple yes-no system. So Saul is sitting under the pomegranate tree, which we already know is a symbol of of uh, uh, prosperity. It's a symbol of promise. And he's got this uh, the priest there with the ephod with this way to make a pretty simple, easy decision. And then we learn that... Jonathan's the one who takes off and doesn't tell anybody about it and Saul is just left sitting there. That's what, we, that's what we know to this point in the story. Which again, frustrates me that the king, the guy who's supposed to be in charge, has this well-known symbolism of this pomegranate tree. He's got this yes-no oracle thing that was given to them by God to be able to make these decisions and he's just sitting there. He's not doing anything. He's just sitting there. That's, that's, it's frustrating to read, isn't it? So nobody realizes that Jonathan had left. Uh, verse 4. <clears throat> Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. There's this app that I like to use called eSword. It's not a free app, it's like three bucks. But it's well worth it, because every word or phrase in the Bible that's used, you get to select that word, and it tells you in Hebrew or Greek or whatever the language was exactly what that word means. Guess what the word bozaz and senna mean? They mean thorny and slippery. That's what those words mean. So if you're going to step out in faith, there's probably going to be some thorny and slippery that you're going to have to walk through. This is not the... The, uh, you know, the nice easy path where, you know, you've seen the kid or the person in the mall, like staring at their phone and walking, not paying attention to anyone. And it, like, it's not that, like you got to pay attention. What he walked through with his armor bearer was thorny and slippery. Keep doing that. That That's, uh, that's helpful. <clears throat> um, so... Uh, Verse 6, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's possibly my new favorite verse in the Bible for this week anyway. It may be it may what that's your plan you you have one of the two swords for you and the 600 other people who are supposed to be defending israel and your plan is let's sneak over there through rocky and or through thorny and slippery and maybe this will work for us yikes so I can't believe this. Like, this does make for a good movie so far, right? Uh, We're going to skip verse 7 for a second because we're going to come back to it. Verse 8 says, Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, if they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. That's your plan. Go between thorny and slippery and show yourself to the enemy who has 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen against your 600. Well, at this point, not even against your 600 because you didn't tell anybody you left. It's just you and another guy who doesn't have a sword. Anyway, so back to verse 7 right quick, just as a little nugget for us. So his armor, so he says, he says, let us go over to them, right? Maybe the Lord will, uh, uh, maybe, it may be that the Lord will work for us. His armor bearer's response, again, the guy with no sword says, so his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I'm with you according to your heart. The guy with no sword says, sure, let's do it. You're right. Maybe the Lord will be with us. Find some friends like that. Be a friend like that who's willing to go on a crazy adventure that doesn't make any sense because maybe the Lord will be with us. Those are the kind of friends I want. That's the kind of friend I want to be. Uh, Okay, 11 and 12. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden. They heard that the other, uh, what's that, 3,000 minus 600 is 2,400. The other 2,400 people are hiding in holes. They heard about this. Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you something. Ding! (laughs) There's your answer. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. That's faith. You with one of the two swords and another guy who doesn't have a sword, up against 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, you got your sign. They said, go go ahead and come on up to us. I mean, they had to make fun of you first, but go ahead and come on up to us. That's your sign that the Lord has given this battle into your hands. Wow. Then verse 13, this is awesome too. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. Climbed up on his hands and knees what good is your sword, the one sword you do have, what good is that? If you have to climb up on your hands and knees, you're completely exposed. You're completely vulnerable. You're not going to find this strategy in the, the Sun Tzu book, The Art of War. You're not going to find this strategy in SEAL Team 6's 100 Ways to Win a Battle. I don't know if that book's a real book, but maybe some of you hadn't heard of The Art of War either climbing up with their hands and feet. (laughs) Like, you can picture this, can't you? And still, by the way, Saul has no idea any of this is happening. He's still sitting under the pomegranate tree, sulking because he decided to make a sacrifice he knew he wasn't supposed to make in the first place. Uh, Where was I? 13? I already read 13, didn't I? I'm going to read it again. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. That's all we get. They fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer had killed them. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer bearer made was about 20 men (laughs) within about half an acre of land. Now we're getting to like the part of the movie where like the music gets louder and it's, you know, much more aggressive and all of that, right? And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the raiders also trembled. What's Saul doing right now while Jonathan and his armor bearer, armor bearer just killed the, the first 20? It doesn't say they killed 20, it says the, the first 20. And now there's trembling in the camp obviously not the Israelite camp because they don't even know this is happening. The garrison, the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked, the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. (laughs) Now, not until this point, now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was a multitude melting away and they went here and there. Finally, they notice something's going on. Uh, <clears throat> I forget where I was again. Uh, multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. That's your first response? Is to just, let's... Take attendance and see who's still here with us. (laughs) And when they called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. I want to stop there for just a second. There is um, debate about whether that verse is appropriately uh, translated. Because what we know about the Ark at this point was that it had been sitting in this little forgotten town 20 years before this. And there is no, there's no evidence, there's no word. I'm talking about the Ark of the Covenant. There's no, the by the way, the thing which represented the presence of God that gave you this promise in the first place, it had been forgotten about 20 years before that and just kept in this little town. Uh, Car- Carith, no. Kerjath Jerem is the name of the town. Again, so you're not thinking I'm making that up. So it seems more reasonable and there are actually translations that don't use the word ark, they use the word ephod because that actually makes more sense. In like it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have made sense to think that Saul, especially this Saul, remember the guy who's just sitting under the pomegranate tree? <clears throat> doesn't understand even what he's sitting on, under, it doesn't make sense that he would have been carrying the ark around with him. And it also doesn't make sense that he would have, that he would have used the words, uh, where is that? Uh, bring the ark of God here, uh, verse 19. Now it happened with Saul. No, that's in the, the original King James. In King James, it says, bring the ark hither. That terminology is never, ever, ever used with the Ark of the Covenant, but it's always used with the ephod to consult the Urim and Thummim. Does that make sense? So, again, there's a little bit of debate about whether or not this is the actual Ark, and this matters because one of the things that I think God is saying to us that we'll talk about later, this was probably the ephod. He wanted, again, to consult the ephod and the the Urim and Thummim. What question do you think he had? The enemy is melting away and he wants to pull out the magic eight ball again and say, should we go over there or not? Man, that guy is frustrating. Is he not frustrated? That's the king. These people ask for an an idiot king. Anyway. Uh, anyway. <clears throat> So then he tells us in, uh, uh, let's go to uh, 19. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Essentially, he says, "Uh, never mind, we don't need an answer anymore. It looks like things are going the way we want them to go over there. They still have no idea what's actually happening. They just know the enemy is melting away. Their response is to ask God if they should go over there, and by the time they get around to actually doing that and getting a yes-no answer, he says, ah, uh, never mind, don't, don't even bother asking God, it looks like it's already done. Which is sort of awesome, but at the same time, still a little bit frustrating, isn't it? Uh Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they all went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. They didn't even have to do anything. They were just headed over there, which, by the way, this, uh, there's this really cool resource I want you to know about. It's called BiblePlaces.com. BiblePlaces.com. It, it is a, um, a pictorial companion to your Bible. When you read something in your Bible, you go to BiblePlaces.com, like, for example, 1 Samuel uh, 14. You go to 1 Samuel 14 uh, on this website. It shows you pictures of a pomegranate tree, shows you pictures of the thorny and slippery place that Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed up, like the actual place. And then it tells you the perspective that Saul and the 600 men would have had when he saw the enemy melting away, and it, it was about four miles away. So he's watching this from four miles away, not really sure what's going on, but by the time he gets there, uh, are we in 20 yet? Then some of them into the battle. Every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. No kidding. If they're killing each other, they must be confused. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Listen to verse 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after the battle. Thanks for joining us, guys the 2,400 other guys who hid in holes and behind rocks and all that stuff, they heard and saw what was going on. Oh, we want to get, like, this is like me with the Nuggets, right? The Nuggets are doing well. They, uh, They get to within two series of winning the NBA championship, and I suddenly become a Nuggets fan. Like, I'm on the bus. I don't have a seat yet. I haven't decided where to sit on the bus yet, but I am on the bus because I'm a homer. The Nuggets are winning. That's these guys. The other 2,400 who fled came back. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. As I I read through this, my attention keeps being drawn back to uh, verse 6. And so I, I feel like God wants us to camp there for just a, a little while longer this morning. Um, I'm gonna read I'm gonna read verse six in a couple of different uh, versions because I, well because I feel like I'm supposed to. So that was New King James. Uh, here's what the message says in about uh, verse six. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on now, let's go across to these uncircumcised pagans. Maybe God will work for us. There's no rule that says God can only deliver us by using a big army. That's what the message says. Uh, The Amplified says, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there's nothing to prevent the Lord from saving either by many or by few. Contemporary English. Jonathan said, Jonathan and the soldier who carried his weapon talked as they went toward the Philistine camp. It's just the two of us against all those godless men, Jonathan said, but the Lord can help a few soldiers win a battle just as easily as he can help a whole army. Maybe the Lord will help us win this battle. and while we're at it, new living. Let's go across to the outposts of these pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Seems like a pretty big deal based on a maybe or based on a perhaps, doesn't it? Like this seems like a, a, a really cool movie it seems like a really big victory that turned on a maybe. I Many people, and sometimes we think that in order to know God's perfect will and be willing to act, that we need the magic ink pen of Christianity to reveal a specific instruction for us to follow, right? Seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? We wish we had our own ephod stones sometimes. That would be cool to have some of those. Or we're waiting on the bushes to start burning or the sky to open up and God himself to come down and poke us in the chest and say, I am God and thus saith the Lord with with an instruction. Like a a lot of times that's what I, it seems that's what we're waiting on to be able to have the, the courage to act or to be able to know for sure the thing that we should do. And I'm not saying God doesn't do that. There was a uh, there was a time in my life, short story. I I I I made a bonehead decision, and I bought this skid steer on tracks. It was called an ASV, and a little bit bigger than a skid steer. But I was using it to uh, to harvest moss rock out of the hills north of Fort Collins. I was selling this this rock to a, a wholesaler, making great money for a few months. Um... In uh, way too much debt for this to to not need to be a long term thing, and a few months didn't cut it. Well, the uh, the uh, fast forward a couple months, I no longer had this wholesaler to sell to. I was just scraping to try to find something to do with this big machine that felt like a humongous anchor I had to pull around everywhere. So I I had found a guy that was willing to uh, to let me pick up some rock for him and. Uh, just stockpile it for him, just barely making enough to make the payments. And I was frustrated about it. And I had, uh, I was having a particularly rough day where I would pick up these rocks, have to drive over some uh, rough terrain, and the rocks would slide off of my forks. And it was just taking just too long to get rocks to the stockpile. And so finally, I prayed and I said, God, if you want me to sell this machine then I'll I'll need something I'll need to know that clearly cuz I didn't know whether I needed to just push harder and something was coming or if I needed to just unload it and do something else. And so I pick up this rock that's about about the size of this pulpit. I mean about these dimensions maybe a little bit longer than this and it's on its edge, right? Big well well-defined, well-proportioned rock that's strong. I've got it on my forks, and the thing has fallen off of my forks like five times in the last 20 feet, it feels like. And I'm frustrated, and I say, God, if you want me to sell this machine, then I need you to break this rock. And I didn't get the word break all the way out of my mouth, and the rock splits in half. And that's what I did. <laughs> I, I stopped, kind of caught my breath. I got out and I looked at the rock because sometimes you can look at the rock and see that there was a crack in that spot before and that you know this wasn't really God answering me like I asked him to or like I demanded of him like a child. It was a fresh, clean break on this great big rock that shouldn't have broken that way. It was pretty obvious that sometimes... God does speak to us that way, but not very often. I've never experienced that since then. What I have experienced is a story like Stephen Furtick tells about about painting his office orange. So Stephen Furtick, I, I, most of you probably know him, he's a, uh, a, a pretty well-known pastor in a big church in one of the Carolinas. Anyway, he buys a new building. Um, In his office, it's determined it needs to be repainted. His favorite color is orange. Odd. But his favorite color is orange. He's tasked with going to buy the orange paint to repaint his office. He, uh, He gets there. And what happens when you get to the paint store? You see all those little cards with all the paint? He's prepared to buy orange paint. And there's a hundred different shades of orange paint for him to choose from. And he says, I wasn't prepared for this. I just wanted orange paint. What, how am I supposed to make this decision? And it was at that point that God said to him, my, my will is my ways. If you're in my ways, that is my will. Don't ask me what color, what shade of orange as long as you pick one of the hundred shades of orange that's still orange, that's my will because it's in my ways and I'll bless it for you. Don't pick purple because you're supposed to pick orange. I just threw that in there for you Ray folks. <laughs> actually for the Yuma folks. <laughs> uh, I, when I was trying to decide whether or not to, whether or not I had actually heard from God about leaving this really good job that I had in Larimer County and coming out here and running for sheriff, I was asking for the sky to open up and for the bushes to start burning and for a booming voice from heaven or God himself to come down and poke me in the chest and say, yes, dummy, this is me. This is what I said. Instead, he took me to Ezra 1, the very first verse in Ezra. And you don't need to go there. What it says is, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus. I mean, the rest of that story is really cool as well, but that's all, I w- that's all I needed. I read the rest of the story, but I kept coming back to the very first verse, the Lord, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus. King Cyrus didn't even know God back then. And what our Bible tells us about the decisions that he ended up making, which changed the history of the world, by the way, I, I mean, we don't have time to get into it, that happened because the Lord moved the heart of a pagan king. And here I am asking for the sky to open up and for the bushes to start burning so that God can tell me, yes, I did ask you to, right? That's what I was expecting. That would be another one of those examples where uh, <clears throat> he wasn't going to give me a specific instruction. He wanted me to choose the way. That was your fault, by the way. I, uh, the whole orange story. Jeremy, I asked Jeremy about that. And this was a little while later. He gave me a, uh, a, a series. It was an entire series, Stephen Furtick series. And the name of the series is God's will is whatever. And I was at a season in life where God's will was not whatever God's will was. I want to know exactly where I'm supposed to take my next step. That, uh, that took me into a new season of obedience and recognizing that God actually does trust me. He trusts you to make good choices that are within the boundaries of his ways. That's his will. Okay, Uh, I'm going to skip that. So how how do we set ourselves up to be ready to act on a maybe? Because that's sort of the point today is we need something to be willing to act on this maybe because maybes are in our life every day all the time. The first, uh, the first thing that I think steps, uh, stands out to me is where was the ark in this whole thing? We talked about this a little bit already. This was the presence of God. Where was, in that time, the symbol and the actual presence of God? Because they didn't have what we have. Like, the presence of God is right here, right now. It's inside of us. We have this all the time. They didn't. It had to be in the ark. The ark had been left at this little town 20 years before that because this is how this happened. The Philistines... By the way, does anybody know who the Philistines are today? The antagonist in our story? It's the Palestinians. Doesn't it? They have always seemed to be the antagonist to God's people. Anyway... They had, uh, they had won a battle. They had um, <clears throat> captured the Ark of the Covenant and taken it away. And they, they took it into this temple from one of their false gods named Dagon. And the Bible tells us, I think this is in, uh, in 1 Samuel 4, I believe. The Bible tells us that they take the Ark of the Covenant, that they had just won in a battle, taken in a battle, into this temple of Dagon. They come in the next day and the statue of Dagon is face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they lift the statue back up. They come back the next day. Statue is face down again in front of the Ark of the Covenant. But this time, its hands are gone and its head is off. And then people start dying anytime they go near it. Philistines start dying anytime they go near it. So, they take it to a different city people start dying in the different city they take it to another different city and the leaders of that city say we don't want this thing like give it back to them so they decide <laughs> they decide to hook up two oxen to a cart put the ark on the, the ox or on the cart with the oxen along with a whole bunch of gifts like a sari and then they you know give these oxen a little paddle on the, the, uh, the road by themselves, and miraculously, the oxen end up at the nearest city where the, city of, where the people of God live. And they say, oh, the ark's back, yay. <laughs> then they go, again, miraculously, not the good kind of miraculous, take it to this little town in the, you know, in the outskirts of their territory, and they forget about it for 20 years. It had the power, the presence of God had the power to cause this this statue to fall on its face. It had the power to really be a bad thing for the enemies to have it. And then they go and put it in this little town and and forget about it for 20 years. Where, Where was the presence when God's people needed him? That's a lesson for us. The presence of God is important. It sets us up to have the courage to be able to act on a maybe, to have the courage to be able to support somebody who's acting on a maybe. Uh, The battle actually started, I think, in, in chapter 13 when the blacksmiths were eliminated. We talked about that already, right? We're told that we should be going through life with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's easier to act on a maybe when you have a sword with you. So maybe when the enemy tries to attack our blacksmiths, we should pay attention to that and not let that happen. Or we should do something to train some other blacksmiths to be able to to make sure we have the weapons we need. You get the idea. Uh, Crystal team, go ahead and come on up. Um, Third thing is... uh, Our willingness to obey a, a binary direction, like an ephod type type direction, that's a different spiritual muscle. Like it's it, we still need that muscle. We need to be willing to be obedient, but that's a different spiritual muscle than the the intrepid. I use the word intrepid for the the title of this message on purpose, for the intrepid courage to act on a maybe, the courage to be able to choose. Which shade? Which of the hundred shades of orange you're going to go with? And God is just waiting on you to do that. He's saying, "There's a hundred different options. Choose one of them, and I'm going to bless it. Trust me. I trust you. Let's do this together." He, like he, he's, he's, like on the edge of his seat almost, waiting for you to choose the color and go with it, so that he can bless you with it. Live. That doesn't diminish the value and the importance of the ephod-type instruction or the willingness to obey, but it does seem to be that it's a fairly normal way of God communicating revelation to us. Doesn't it? Doesn't it seem that way? Uh, Psalms. Uh, Psalm 37, you don't have to go there either. Psalm 37, verse 23 encourages us to walk in his way, not in his step. Verse 34 in, uh, in Psalm 37 says, and keeping his way. He, he's not giving us instructions to take a precise step. He wants us to walk in his ways. Uh, I, I may have said that there were three things that I think we could do to set ourselves up. There's actually four, and this last one's important. And I mentioned it already. Surround yourself with people like Jonathan's armor bearer. Your community matters. The people that you surround yourself should be the ones who are willing without a sword to step behind you and say, "You're right. Maybe God will do this for us." Amen. Surround yourself on purpose. Hey, look at me. Surround yourself on purpose with people like that. Be that to people so that they can be encouraged to step out on a maybe, perhaps, God will do this thing for us. Let's be a people that can be told, not that can be told, let's be a people where it's told that we were a people who were willing to act on a maybe. Let's look forward to the tales that are told about us that say we supported the maybes that they stepped out on. God, I thank you. I thank you that it pleases you for us to exercise faith and act on maybes like Jonathan did, like Esther did maybe you were born for such a time as this thank you that it pleases you for us to step out in those situations i thank you that we have opportunities like that all around us to do that i thank you that we have opportunities to to be like jonathan's armor bearer and to and to surround ourselves with people like jonathan's armor bearer. let us be encouraged Let us be strengthened to act on those maybes and look forward to seeing your hand and your favor on the choices that we make that are in line with your ways. I thank you for speaking to us today in a way that matters, in a way that makes a difference, and I thank you for the results that we can look forward to and that we can expect as a result. Amen. Thank you for listening. To subscribe to our podcast, search New Life Eckley in all of the major podcasting apps. Audio and video of our sermons are posted at newlifeeckley.com slash live, and you can watch Sermon Slices weekdays on social media. Search at New Life Eckley. Our main service is at 10 a.m. Mountain Time every Sunday. Thanks for listening.